Now for this month's special series on ReachMD, focus on future medicine. We're looking ahead to pivotal breakthroughs and technologies that will transform healthcare in the coming years. It sounds, in some ways, like a modern-day witch trial. Using brain scans to detect a suspect's recollection of an act they stand accused of committing. Some experts around the world suggest this test could put an end to lying, hailing the technology as an advance potentially as important as DNA evidence. What are the legal ramifications for using this type of technology in court? And if this test isn't the panacea, is there another method in the pipeline that could be? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focused on future medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery and practicing general surgeon. Our guests are Mr. Henry Greeley, professor of law and director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford University, and Dr. J. Peter Rosenfeld, professor of psychology at Northwestern University. Welcome, Mr. Greeley and Dr. Rosenfeld. Nice to be here. Nice to be here again. As I understand it, this test builds on a body of work on neuroscience-based lie detection. Could you comment on that? I think in 1987, I was the first person who actually published a peer-reviewed paper in which P300 was used as a so-called guilty knowledge indicator. We had people pretend to steal an item out of a box of jewels, and then we tested them for recognition of that item by presenting the names of all the items on a screen every two or three seconds. And when the item that they actually took out of the box and concealed on them appeared on the screen, they generated a P300 event-related potential or brainwave. A lot of people have played with this protocol since then, including ourselves, and it is quite promising. Some more work remains to be done. But meanwhile, another technology called Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, fMRI, was developed around the same time, but it didn't become used as a deception indicator until somewhat later. It basically indicates when different parts of the brain are becoming metabolically active in certain psychological states. Uh, One of the states that people have been looking at has been the state of deception, There are about a dozen papers, maybe by now it's 15 or 16, I'm not really sure, in which fMRI has attempted to have been used as a deception indicator. There are some promising directions, but a lot more work remains to be done with fMRI than with the older EEG technologies like P300. Generally, which would you say would be more credible, the functional MRI or this special system that is used in India? Oh, well, the system used in India is not based on any research that I know about, any peer-reviewed serious research. And, in fact, the claims that are put forward by these Indian developers that one can distinguish recognition from participation, there's nothing like that in the pure cognitive memory literature. That is, whether you learn about something by being told about it versus by actually participating in whatever it was yourself, cannot be distinguished, as far as I know, by any extant methodology. So how does this test theoretically separate events witnessed from deeds committed? That's proprietary. They won't tell us that, and so I can't give you an answer. We have no idea. We just have to trust them. I suppose we could give them their own lie detection test and see if they decided that they were telling us the truth or not. 
I'd rather give them my detection test. The BIO system, this Indian system, I think, should have no credibility right now, at least in the absence of any kind of peer-reviewed published support for it. The fMRI basis, there are now about 15 or 16 peer-reviewed published articles. Along with a colleague named Judy Illis, I wrote an article that reviewed the then 12 published articles as of March of 2007. And I think it's a promising technology, but I wouldn't put nearly enough confidence on it at this point to use it in court or to use it in anything other than a research context. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, there are way too many limitations in the research that's been done. And there's, as far as I know, not a single one of these studies has been replicated by an independent lab. So everyone says, we found a signal. Most of them disagree about what the signals look like, and no independent lab has replicated anyone's results yet. If I may just take a very small, perhaps irrelevant issue, and I'll explain why. It turns out that there is some agreement among, I would say, at least six of the investigators involved that there's one area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex and the other frontal cortical systems that are associated with this, connected to it. And this ACC system seems to light up in many of the studies, at least half of the studies, perhaps two-thirds. But yeah, I, th- I think that's right, although the studies also show other systems being activated yes. that aren't consistent from research. That's right, research. And, and what I would say, and that's why I say this consensus is possibly irrelevant, it turns out the anterior cingulate cortex lights up for almost anything. I mean, not just deception, but recognition, anger, depression, all sorts of things. It's a very generalized piece of cortex that tends to light up in many psychological states, and its I don't think anybody would say, including the 16 people who have the publications, that the anterior cortex is the deception center. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Future Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guests are Mr. Henry Greeley, Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford University, and Dr. J. Peter Rosenfeld, Professor of Psychology at Northwestern University. We're discussing the future of lie detection. Gentlemen, past mechanisms that have been used to extract the truth Why have they been so unsuccessful, such as truth serum and polygraphs? Frankly, I never heard of a truth serum. There were some movies made in the 50s and 60s. I remember an Italian movie called General della Rovere, in which scopalamine was supposed to be a truth serum used by uh, Nazi interrogators to extract information. But, you know, that's movie stuff. Scopalamine doesn't have any specific deception-detecting function. I think there actually were some experiments and even perhaps some intelligence community uses of sodium pentothal and some other things. But Dr. Rosenfeld's right. They don't have any specific truth-detecting capabilities. They sort of make you drunk. You lose your inhibitions about telling the truth, but those have uh, fairly long been abandoned. Well, tell us about polygraphs. A polygraph is one word that actually describes two protocols. One is called the control question test, which is a did-you-do-it kind of test that they're very fond of in North America, Canada, and the U.S., 
and other countries where they, they basically say, did you do this? And I'm not an expert on polygraph methods which use lower body responses like sweat gland activity, respiration, heart rate, and such. But I do know what the scientific community thinks about the control question test, and it tends to be very dismissive and negative. There is another protocol which doesn't ask, did you do it, but asks, again, if you recognize crime-relevant information. That's called the guilty knowledge test. And by the way, the only difference between it and the protocol we use is they look at the lower body, and we look at the upper body. We look at P300, they look at respiration, and heart rate, and blood pressure, and that sort of thing. Mr. Greeley, how do the courts look at the polygraphs? The polygraph is inadmissible in courts in the United States. Why, sir? Because courts have found, first, that it's generally not sufficiently reliable as scientific evidence, and second, that even if it were viewed as being reliable, the potential for delay and confusion of the jury and prejudicing the jury outweighs any probative value, any truthful value the polygraph might have. I should say that in law, everything has exceptions. The state courts in New Mexico allow the polygraph in presumptively. All other 49 states deny its use except under some very limited circumstances. There was a very nice report put out by a National Academy of Sciences committee about the polygraph and specifically its use in security screening in 2004 that reviews the scientific literature on polygraphs and concludes that when well done and when done on people who are not using countermeasures to it, the polygraph is better than chance at detecting lie. It may be as good as 75 to 80 or 85 percent accurate. That committee concluded that was not nearly useful enough to justify its continued use in security screenings. Uh, the federal government said thank you for the report and proceeded to ignore it. What are the countermeasures you're referring to? For polygraphy, a common, and I think this goes more to the control question test that Dr. Rosenfeld was talking about, commonly your reactions, your physiological reactions associated with anxiety, your pulse, your breathing rate, how much you're sweating, will increase when you feel anxious. You will be asked a series of questions. Some of the questions will be bland control questions. Some of the questions will be questions where they expect anyone might lie or feel nervous. So a question like, have you ever stolen anything in your life? And then there'll be some questions focused on the particular incident or particular concern they've got. If you can elevate your physiological response, your anxiety kind of response to the control questions, it will make it very hard for the polygrapher to tell the difference between when you are actually anxious and when you are pretending to be anxious. Some of the methods that people have used have been mental. Some of them have been more physical, like putting a tack in their shoe, spiking their toe with it to cause some pain when they're answering one of the control questions, or tightening all the sphincters that they can tighten in their body which apparently has some effect on blood pressure and pulse and so on. So there are a number of these countermeasures out there. There's not a whole lot of very rigorous scientific research on how good they are with polygraphy. They are widely believed to have some effect. And plus, we do know that there are people who were regularly polygraphed and regularly managed to beat the machine. Aldrich Ames, a CIA employee who turned out to be a Russian spy or a Russian agent, past scores, if not hundreds, of polygraph examinations. So the one thing we know for sure is that polygraphy is certainly far from perfect.
If it is far from perfect, and some people say it's unreliable, why does it exist any further? Well, because certain federal agencies are attached to it. But again, I think that's speaking about the control question test. Um, yes. The guilty knowledge test actually is, I would say, scientifically acceptable. It's very accurate. I mean, it can be as accurate as you want to make it, and how that is is technical, and I won't bore you with it. But the problem with the guilty knowledge test is that, like the control question test, it is vulnerable to countermeasures. And the countermeasures are different, but they work. What about the countermeasures there? Well, in the guilty knowledge test, they show you, as I think I mentioned before, a series of items, most of which are irrelevant to the crime under investigation, and one of which, or two of which, are relevant. And when you see the relevant one, you react with a physiological response that indicates your guilt. Now, if you can tell what the irrelevant items are that are not relevant to the crime and then do a secret response and it can be something even mental like thinking about your first name or your last name and then you have turned the so-called irrelevant items into relevant targets and then you make physiological responses to those that works with either brain waves or with autonomic nervous system and, and that's uh, one of the real yeah. um i think barriers to the possible use of any of this lie detection if it's something like attack in the shoe Examiners can check your shoes. They can look to see whether right. they're attacks. They can even try to have sensors that determine whether you're tightening your muscles in various ways. But if all that's involved in a countermeasure is thinking about something or thinking about it in a different way, it's going to be awfully hard for them to detect that as a countermeasure. Personally, I'm rather agnostic about whether EEGs or fMRI will lead to successful, highly reliable lie detection but I think the biggest barrier any of these methods will have to confront is the possibility of countermeasures, which ironically would mean that the people you most want to catch, the people who may be terrorists or confirmed criminals, will be the ones who are most likely to pass the test because they'll have received training in the appropriate countermeasures. Let me just add one thing that continues on the countermeasure idea. I do think that... Uh our lab probably has been the only one um, which has been systematically studying countermeasures and how to beat them by changing the protocol. And, uh, and uh, I'm optimistic that in oh, five or ten years uh, we may have something that's useful. It will use the guilty knowledge protocol. Perhaps fMRI could uh, do the same sorts of things that we're doing. There's no doubt that, that both fMRI and EEG uh, are measuring brain activity in response to cognitive events, including self-awareness of deception. It should be possible to extract that and keep the noise, the countermeasure-induced noise, away or detectable. I want to thank our guests, Mr. Henry Greeley and Dr. J. Peter Rosenfeld. We've been discussing the future of lie detection. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill. And you have been listening to a special segment, Focus on Future Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Future Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.